0: Well, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been in this series called Your uh, Upper, and it's based on the book of Nehemiah, and hopefully you've been digging into Nehemiah. Our kids, the, the verse is from Nehemiah from uh, Vacation Bible School this week. It's been a great month together. Uh, I was out of town. I was thankful that uh, Pastor Guerin was able to, to preach last week. And uh, excited about digging in, this is our last week into Nehemiah, and so we're going to cover a lot, so we're going to jump in here in a second. But next week I want to tell you, we're, we're getting into this, the July series, and it's probably one of my favorite of the year, and it's HFC at the Movies. And so if you're new to us and you don't remember last year, we will take a movie every week. And it's a movie uh, that you're probably familiar with or maybe you haven't seen before. And uh, we're going to be using God's Word and going to be using uh, movies to connect to God. And it's a great opportunity for you to invite someone that maybe doesn't do the church thing. It's like church is not really uh, their thing, but this is maybe a chance that they can connect to, to God. And so each week we'll be looking at different movies. At the very end of the month, we're going to be looking at Zootopia as a Family Life Sunday. So it'll be a fun family day at the end of July. So looking forward to that. Great invites opportunity for you. Like I said, it's been cool to see kids and uh, adults into Nehemiah. Maybe it's a new book for you. If you want to go and start flipping there, it's in the Old Testament. It might take you a while to to get there. Uh, One of our our young people, uh, Oliver, uh, he, Oliver Wilson... He actually did a picture and uh, service once of uh, Nehemiah, they're studying it as a family. Very cool to see. It reminded me as a kid, I was telling his mom, reminded me of a, as a kid, that's exactly what I would do. I would draw pictures of what the, whoever was talking about and a lot of times, unfortunately, mine had Bart Simpson uh, in there, but uh, that's where I was at at the time. I don't know how he worked into the story of God, but he was there. Um, but if you haven't been with us, quick review of Nehemiah, where we've been so far. Uh, we know this in Nehemiah, that, that God's people were in exile. The people of, of Israel, they were in exile. Babylon grabbed them out of the land that God promised them in Jerusalem and took them captive, and then Persia took over and uh, kicked out the Babylonians. So now Persia, uh, the people there, and the king, Artaxerxes, had the people of God, and they were in captivity. Jerusalem in the process, the, the kind of the capital, was just ransacked. Uh, fire destroyed the city and the walls, the walls around the city that protected the people and where the pride of the people were destroyed. And so Nehemiah, our main character, is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he heard about this destruction. He heard about how the, just things were just totally broken. People were broken. The walls were broken. And now his heart was broken because his heart began to break for the things that break, uh, breaks God's heart. And the thing that I love about Nehemiah is he was just a regular Joe. He wasn't some amazing pastor, priest, uh, or someone that everyone knew about. He was just Nehemiah. And Nehemiah began to dream, and he began to pray, and he began to plan, and he began to think about how he can restore the walls, and how God was going to do this, and how he was going to restore the people of God. And so he went to the king, King Artaxerxes, and he courageously asked him, you remember this part... To if he could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And then he even asked him to the keys to the, the Home Depot. He asked him for supplies to build the wall back then. When he gets there, he, he begins to rally the people. He shows them a vision of what things are going to look like, and people begin to, to, to get together behind this vision and begin to rebuild the walls. And then last week, Pastor Garen talked about how when God gives you something big and God is, you're a part of God's plan, some people are going to come along, and they're going to try to discourage you. There are going to be, as the kids say, haters. They are going to hate, and there are going to be doubters and scoffers and people in your life that are going to try to bring you down. And through God's help, they would over, overcome these obstacles from outside the project and inside even that it came about. And so that's where we are now. We're in uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. It's a very short verse here to start us off. Nehemiah 6.15 says this. This is the NLT version, and it says, So on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after it had begun. 52 days, 52 days. Two, about two miles of walls were rebuilt. That's got to be like some kind of... Guinness is a book of world records for wall building. I don't, did you ever read that book as a kid, Guinness's book? That would be, is it Genesis or Guinness' by the way? Genesis. we're going with that. Uh, it would always be the lady, I would always find the lady with the, the long fingernails in that book, you remember, remember that? Some kind of record, 52 days to rebuild the entire walls of the city. Can you imagine being on that kind of project when you see the, just the immense task? And how many layers of brick it's going to take and how long it's going to take. And you start with one, then two, then three. And then can you imagine the gathering of the people as they were putting the last stone in place? And just the woo-hoo, just the the cheers, maybe some tears of joy, some some laughter, just remembering what it took and how God was with them. That kind of celebration happened. Now, here's some of my favorite verses of the whole book. It says this in, in Nehemiah 6, the next verse, next verse says, they realized that when, the, when their enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. So those scoffers, those haters that were all around, now they're just mouths are shut. They were, lost their self-confidence. They were frightened and humiliated. And the next verse says this, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. That's a great verse. You should underline it. You should highlight it. They realized this work had not been done by just mere men, but it had been done with the help of our God. Have you ever experienced that before? Where you had, we call it maybe a God moment, where you realized, whoa, this isn't natural. There's something extraordinary that's happened here. Amazing even. There was a an old, there's an Old Testament scholar who wrote this book, and uh, I'm sure have ever heard of it before, but it's called Him Again by Cornelius Anton van Pusen. And Cornelius wrote this amazing book, and, and the title Him Again, and the, the theory of the book is this. First of all, that remember the people of the Old Testament, they don't have the knowledge of history that we did. They were just being introduced to who this God was. And so the people of God, they had to be kind of like a, a master detective. Now, a couple of master detectives that I thought of was, of course, uh, we have Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I love the new series, Sherlock Holmes, uh, and, and Sherlock is just finds all these clues and is very perceptive, and, and if, if you're a little older, maybe you remember, you remember Murder, She Wrote with Angela Lansbury uh, was there. Yeah, or even if you like the game Clue, where you're trying to figure out who done it. I think there was there was the movie back in the 80s as well, who the person with the candlestick in the library or or whatever. And essentially, all these things have in common. They're trying to figure out who did it, and so you look at the clues and you look all around, and you know, always on Murder She Wrote, someone would die, and uh, then at, by the end of the 50-minute episode, Angela Lansbury would turn and say it was him. Or Sherlock would say, it was her, it was him. And you you finally go, ah, it's the aha moment that's there. And he'd point, it was him. And the music, dum dun, dum, there it is. It's revealed. And you're trying to figure out through the process. So what this author, Van Pusen, says is this. The people of God back in the Old Testament had to look around and be very perceptive and see the signs throughout scripture. And then they would say, that's him. It's him. So in the beginning, When God created, and there was nothing, and then it was void and formless, and suddenly there were stars and mountains, and pointed, they would point up to the stars, it's him, it's him. Or there was a story about this old couple, I mean old, old, and one day God spoke to these people, and he said, you're going to have a baby, and this is going to be a miracle baby. She was 95, and she began to laugh at God, and guess what happened? That baby came. And then everyone started saying, it's him. It's him again. It's him. And there would be different things all throughout the Old Testament and through history. There were these, these Hebrew children that the, the king said, bow down and worship this God. And they said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We only bow down and worship one God. And they were thrown into this fiery furnace. But the king goes to the furnace. You remember the story. There's not three people. There's four people. And what do they say? It's him. It's him. There's this guy, Moses, who led the people out of exile, out of captivity, and he says he rescues God's people, and they get to this, this watery place, this Red Sea, and suddenly he lifts up his staff. The water is, is parted, and the people go through dry land, and what do the people say? It's him. It's him again, and the story continues, and it goes on and on. Daniel, he go, gets thrown into a lion's den for praying. And suddenly the people look in and Daniel is using the lions as uh, like bean bags and sleeping on top of them. And it's a nice pillow. They How in the world could this happen? It's him. It's him again. So years later, when this guy shows up from Nazareth, a carpenter, and he begins to heal people. And the blind can see and the lame can walk again. And people's lives are totally changed. What do they say? It's him. It's him again. When he dies and he rises again, it's him. When a guy named Saul becomes Paul, a guy who once persecuted Christians is now starting churches everywhere, what do they say? It's him again. It's him again. So When we go around and we see people that are totally different, and I'm looking at people right now that have before and after stories, that lives have been transformed and changed, and we say, how in the world is that possible? It's him. So that's what's going on here uh, to start off. The, The walls are done. They say, how in the world is possible? It's him. It's God who has done it. It's God who has done it. Now, I have this idea. I've been turning this idea around this week for a TV show, okay? Here's the TV show idea, all right? After the Big Reveal is the name of the show, okay? We'll call it After the Big Reveal. I know I I did not get Nick to help me on these graphics, so we need some uh, help with that, first of all. Uh, But here's the idea. You've seen these shows. They're now commonplace for now a few years, these makeover shows where, like Fixer Upper, where they have this ruined house, and it's restored, and woohoo, it's awesome. Move that bus, yes, and everyone cheers, the neighborhood's behind it. Or maybe you've seen, we were into The Biggest Loser for a while, watching that, and people just go from just, you know, 400 pounds or 300 pounds, and now they're just skinny as a rail, and woohoo, and people cheer, and we love it. Or My idea, here it is, and just throwing it out there, is what if we do like five years later? what would that look after the big reveal, okay? Now, we've seen maybe a couple weeks later, and we've seen those stories, but what about five years later? Now, I was turning that around. I started Googling this, maybe the possibility of this, and I found out, I'm gonna be honest with you. I I, I was gonna show you a video. I was gonna show you some pictures. I said, you know what? That's kind of depressing because what I saw was almost half the people, if not more, the stories weren't so good. The weight had been gained back the house had been lost in foreclosure. The house was in ruin. Some people didn't even want to show pictures of the house where it was now because it, it now time had passed. And El some there were great stories, the way to stayed off. The house looks amazing. They actually added some things to the house and these new ideas. It's been it's fantastic celebrating that. But not all the stories were good, and Nehemiah knew that I think because it, the story of Nehemiah is this: it took him 52 days to to build the walls. But he stayed for 12 years. The book of Nehemiah, actually half of the book is about rebuilding the walls. The other half of the book is about the after the reveal. Now, we're not going to have time to go through every chapter of the book, but I want to give you some highlights because what Nehemiah says is this. These are the practices. These are the things that you're going to have to do to maintain what God has been doing in us and knowing that God is for us He wants to do something through us. And so that's what Nehemiah begins to teach and talk about and so, what, what does he do first? He begins to pray and to seek God. They had this reveal. And then, Nehemiah 7. We're going to just kind of fly through some of these chapters. The first thing he does is this. He begins to pick out pastors and leaders and governors and people that are going to basically help to lead other people, to give some structure to what's happening in the city. And then in verse, 7, or verse 4 of chapter 7, it says this. At that time, the city was large and spacious, but the population was small, and none of the houses had been rebuilt. So the walls are up now in the city of Jerusalem, but there are no people, hardly, inside. Huge problem. So my God, catch this, my God gave me the idea to call together all the nobles and the leaders of the city, along with the ordinary citizens for registration. So basically, he began to call people and say, hey, we're gonna count people. This was a common practice back then. You would begin to count people, and if you read seven, there's tons of just names after name after name, and people that came back from tribes, and and they begin to come back to the city, and maybe they hadn't heard what had happened along the the city walls, and suddenly they're just looking around. This is a different place. The walls are being rebuilt. The city is beginning to to have life again, and he calls these people together. It's 42,000, the Bible tells us, and all around that number. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I, uh, well, actually, I was gone last week and I was gone for a family reunion. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, it, it was Melanie's side of the family, uh, the Wood family reunion. So that's Melanie's mom's family reunion. Uh, I am just going to throw this out there because we're all friends. I was not excited about going to this uh, reunion and. I'd like to say I kept that all to myself, but (laughs) I made it very known that I was not excited about going uh, to this reunion. I can't make eye contact with my wife right now. Uh, While I gathered here, when we finally got there. uh, You know, the the place was nicer. I actually got to watch a little bit of golf. They had a TV, so kudos to the the campground there in Oklahoma. But something cool began to happen, uh, and something, obviously, because I don't have these experiences. They began to tell stories. The family did. About uh, way back years before, about the farm in Kansas, and about how grandma and grandpa built this farm, and the the farmhouse four stories high, and about some of the stories that what took place in that that house, and about how these people were pioneers for their family, that they were the first in in generations to serve the Lord, and they basically made a decision, we are going to serve the Lord, and that means we all are going to serve the Lord, and it became a ripple effect throughout. And so stories were shared. And we began to remember. And I heard for the first time some amazing stories. When, when Nehemiah calls the people together, and that's what he does. He gathers the people together. And they begin to remember. And, and remembering is important. It's, it's important that we gather together, folks. It's important that we gather together on a regular basis, basis to remember who God is. To remember who we are. And to remember who we're called to be. And that's what's taking place here. You're not going to believe what's going to, what happens. They get together and they say, they're all together in the city. And I don't know, the memories begin to flood together. And, 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 and here's what happens. In 8.2.3, it says this, October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate, and they even built this tower, it says, up so he could stand in this place. And what does he do? He opens up the Word of God. And from early morning until, until noon, read aloud to everyone who could understand, all the people listened closely to the book of law. They began to just begin to read God's Word right there. Now, side notes here. Back then, this would probably be the first time in two or three hundred years that the Word of God had been pronounced out loud. People did not have God's Word at their disposal like we do. We have it on the fingertips of our phones, and you probably have three or four copies at your house. If you don't have one, go to any hotel. You can probably steal one out of there. Uh, Don't steal. You can borrow. There are apps that are free, okay? There are apps that are free that are there. For the record, I just want to point this out. My father was a Gideon, or is a Gideon, okay? Gideons are the ones that put the Bibles in the hotels, and he has told me that it is okay that you do that. Uh, By the way, other side note to the side note, uh, the reason my dad became a Gideon is he was in Shoney's one day, and they were eating breakfast all together, and they were talking about giving Bibles out, and he said, I like breakfast, I like the Bible, I'm going to be a Gideon. Uh, And so my dad became a Gideon. So we always had these little Bibles around in our garage and things. But the word of God is everywhere for us these days. You know, I did a funeral a couple of weeks ago, and it was a, it was a tough funeral. It was tough because I, I'd never met the woman before, and so I, had to, I spent time with the family, and I just wanted to, hey, share some stories, tell me about mom. And there were not a lot of good stories. There were a couple of things, of, things that she liked and things that she did, but there was, there was kind of a coldness that was there. There was a distance that was there in family. And so I began to ask about, hey, what was mom's faith like? And there wasn't a lot of, of, of comments there. And I said, well, this is a practice that I do. Just to note, if I ever am to do your funeral, I'm, I asked for her Bible. Does she have a Bible? Oh, she has a Bible. Fantastic. Can you please bring it by? It was an 80-year-old King James Bible. It was just beautiful. It was one that her mom and dad had given to her at the age around 10. And I was was given this Bible, and I I felt very just honored to be able to use it. I opened it up. Can I be honest with you? It had looked like it hadn't been touched for 80 years. There was no underlines. There was no crumpled pages. It almost looked like you could buy it from the store the day that I had it. We can have something so transforming and so life-giving and so amazing, the Word of God, and we could do nothing with it and not be transformed and not live into the story that God has called us to live. And so what do they do? They gather together and they start to read God's Word. They read it out loud, and you're not going to believe what happens next. As, as Ezra is reading, the people, they're standing the whole time, by the way, every day. That's like six hours, okay? We can't even make it through three courses, all right? And we're like, okay, it's time to sit down, Garen. Uh, (laughs) Six hours they stood the whole time as the word is being read. In the beginning, God created. There was darkness, and and there was nothing, and then there was lights, and God created. And what was their response? Amen. They responded, amen. They lifted their hands. They praised God. They said, the people of God, were they were formed out of nothing. And they were formed in the image of God. And the people would say, amen, amen. And they would tell stories about the Hebrew children in the fire and Daniel in the lion's den and, and how God had been faithful through all of it. And the people would say, amen, and amen. They were having church, people. They were having church. And what happens when we have church? When God's word is read, and, and, and he is the center of all that we do. Our hearts are realigned to the heart of God. Can I confess to you today, I've gone to church all my life. I, every time the doors have been open, probably I've come to church. It was not an option for me to go to church. And it will never be an option for my children when they're in my house to, to go to church. Because I am trying to form within them habits and practices that will form and shape them because every time I believe, and this is a personal thing, and this is not, I believe what God does when we gather together and we hear his words and we sing about him and we recognize who him, is, he begins to change me every single time. So, when I go on vacation, when I go out of town, I can't sleep in on Sunday because I got to be with God's people. I got to be where God's word is being read and we're singing and praising God. And that's what happened that day. It's a practice that Nehemiah knew that the people needed that day. So, they read from the book, this is 8 and 9 now, the law, and they clearly explained, Michelle, this is, I don't know if you're in the room, this would be your favorite part, because what they did next is this, basically they divided up into small groups, because the people, they didn't understand all of it. They began to small, divide up into small groups and the leaders begin to explain it to them. They clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is sacred, a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of God. So there was a sec as they were reading God's word, there was a a section that began to to cry and they began to weep. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a position where, where, and I I would like to, to believe all of us have at some point or another, that you've been convicted by God before. They hear God's word And like I do most often when I read God's word is I see who God is and who Jesus is. I see where I am, and I see that there's a difference in between. And God begins to move in me and convicts me and begins to push me into what I'm called to be and who I'm called to be. And so there was weeping that was was happening there. But Nehemiah corrects them and says, today is not a day of weeping. Today is not a day of weeping. Today actually is a day of rejoicing. As we come into this house today, anytime we come into to, to the presence of God, there's probably gonna be some conviction. Now that's totally different than condemnation and shame. And just some things that I played around with this week, this conviction, God convicting us, saying, Here's some things that, that you need to work on, here's some things that are not like me, here's some things that maybe you need to you need to change. Conviction leads to Christ likeness. That's holiness, if you've ever heard that word. Christ likeness. It leads us to change. It leads us to spiritual growth when we recognize those things. Condemnation or shame, that leads to separation, to darkness, and to emptiness. Conviction inspires us. God, I want to do this. I want to follow you. I need to to become more like you in this area. Give me boldness. Give me courage to say what you're calling me to say or who you're calling me to be in my workplace or in my home and in various places. Condemnation, it pushes us away from God. Maybe you've been like me before where you've kind of tried to avoid church because you felt like you would feel shame because you've, you've separated from God in certain areas. But that's not what God's calling the people to that day and he's not calling us to that today. He's calling us to be convicted and to confess the difference. And that's what happens in chapter nine. They begin to confess. They begin to say... They they go back and they look at God's word. They look at their own history. And that's what happens sometimes when we go to reunions or we, we spend time together. We realize that there are some stories in the past that we're not so proud of, right? Stories that we don't necessarily tell all the time, but they're good to remember. Why? Because you don't want to repeat the past. How many people do we know, okay, that have looked at their parents, or maybe this is your story, You've looked at your parents and you've said, I will never, ever, never, 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 ever be like them. And you are right in the middle of the same things that they were doing or a part of some good, not, some not so good. So what's the story of the people of God? They were on a repeat cycle. They had, if you've watched uh, Finding Dory, they had short-term memory loss of sorts, okay? Because God would do something amazing for them. They would go, it's him again, it's him again. God would rescue them. God would save them. God would provide for them. God would bless them. And they would, things would be right with, him, with them and God, and then they would forget. And they would turn to other gods. And they would chase after things that are not of God. And God would say, why? What are, what are you doing? And finally, he would allow them to go that direction and just go into the darkness, into captivity for the people. And God would, would, would not give up on the people. He never gives up on the people. He continues to, to pull them and say, come back, come back. And that's what he does for us. He continues to redeem us and restore us, and he doesn't give up on us. And that's what Nehemiah is so excited about. It's like, don't cry, don't weep. It's okay to feel conviction, but know this, God does not give up. On you. He doesn't give up on me. He doesn't give up on us. It doesn't matter how far. And that's why we tell stories like the prodigal son who was far away from God but was pulled back for because of a father's love. And that's what's happening today. Remember, remember, remember. So the people confess and they remember. Chapter 10 is all about recommitting. They recommit themselves to this this person of this, this God. And they say, We're gonna put you first in our life. We're going to put you first in every area of our lives so they remember the Sabbath. They remember the gathering. We're going to keep this Sabbath. We're going to stop in the middle of working, and we're going to pause, and we're going to recognize you, and we're even going to rest in the middle of that. Another thing they do is they, they make this oath not to intermarry okay, with other, other, other groups. Now, this is super important, and I want you to hear this. If you're asleep, wake up on this part, okay? Now, when I was... Young, growing up in Alabama, okay? You're following me? I, verses like this chapter were used to say, you're not allowed to marry people from other countries or other nationalities or cultures. That is not what Nehemiah is saying, okay? You with me? What he is saying is this, and you have to go to context, 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 okay? The people of God, they followed God. Other people followed other gods, Okay? So when you're talking about other people and other tribes there, it was the, they were following after the God of Baal, the God of such and such, the God of whatever. And so the people of God were known as the people who followed after God. So why would the, the intermarrying thing? Because when you would go and marry someone else, you were being joined together with another God. So have no other gods before me. That's why this guy Solomon, remember King Solomon, the wise one? What happened? His... his His legacy was destroyed at the end when he began to intermarry from other cultures and other gods were a part of that. And when you mix God, little g-god, with big g-god, that doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work. And that's what he's trying to express. It's it's totally different than than what people have misinterpreted. And so don't allow other little g-gods to come into your life. And so just along with that, they begin to say, we've got to remember this thing called tithing. Now, I had my review. uh, One thing that I was really reflective, you know, one thing that I I don't talk about, and you know this, probably about me, I don't talk about money that much. For a couple of reasons, I think televangelists have totally ruined uh, that conversation for everyone. And it just, that's in the back of my mind. But I need to tell you this, this is super important, that money is the biggest little g-god that there is. And I think we know that. So why did they set aside, we're going to set aside every single time we get get something, we're going to set aside a portion of it to God. Why did they do that? Because they are saying, God is God. Money is not going to be my God. And so everything is whose? It's God's not going to show the clip. I have it, but you can YouTube it, okay? On Finding Nemo, my favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes is the seagulls. Mine, 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 mine. I think that every time I think that's so natural for us to say that, right? Everything's mine. Take, 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 take. So what does tithing do? We say it's his, it's his, it's his, it's his, it's his, 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 his. And when you recognize that, then you realize that everything is a gift. It's all a blessing, and you're very open-handed, and you're compassionate. Because what did they use that money for? That, that tie for to give away to people who didn't have, who didn't have. So it's easy sometimes, though, when you're out of practice to forget what God has called us to be and who God has called us uh, to be in the world and what to do. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Donald Miller. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, he wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz. Uh, It was, uh, I think, his most popular book. And uh, then he wrote this uh, follow-up book to that. There were some guys that came uh, and said, hey, we want to make a movie about this book. And so he began to get in the process of taking a book uh, basically about his life and uh, making that into a movie. And so this book, the uh, follow-up to that is A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And it's basically about the process of taking that book and making it into a movie that people will actually want to watch. And so there's various stories within it and you know basically the essential thing is he's trying to learn how to tell a good story. And so or to to show a good movie or, or have a good narrative there. And so he goes to a conference about storytelling. And he comes back from this conference and he runs into a friend. He says when I got back from Los Angeles, I got together with my friend Jason who was thir- who has a 13-year-old daughter He was feeling down because he and his wife had found pot hidden in their daughter's closet. She was dating a guy too, a kid who smelled like smoke and only answered questions with single words, yeah, no, whatever, why? And why was the answer Jason hated the most? Have her home by 10, Jason Jason would say. Why? The guy would ask. Jason figured this guy was the reason why his daughter was experimenting with drugs. You, you thinking about grounding her, I asked, not allowing her to date him? We've tried that, but it's gotten worse. Jason just shook his head and, and fidgeted his fingers on the table. Then I said something that caught his attention. I said his daughter was living a terrible story. What do you mean, he asked. To be honest, I didn't know exactly what I meant. I, I probably wouldn't have said it if I wouldn't have just returned from the seminar, but I told him about the stuff that I'd learned and that the elements of story involve a character who wants something uh, and, and overcomes conflict to get it, and even as I said this, I wasn't sure how to apply it to his daughter. Go on, my friend said. I don't know exactly, but, but she's just not living a, a very good story. She's caught up in a bad one. I said a lot of other things, and he kept asking questions. We must have talked for an hour or more just about story and about how novels work and how some movies are meaningful and some simply aren't. I didn't think much of it. I just figured he was curious about movies. A couple of months later, I ran into Jason and asked him about his daughter. She's better, he said to me, smiling. And when I asked him why, he told me his family was living a better story. The night after we talked, Jason couldn't sleep. He thought about the story of his daughter, the starter was living, and the role she was playing inside of that story. He realized he hadn't provided a a better role for his daughter. He hadn't mapped out a story for his family. And so his daughter had chosen another story, a story in which she was wanted, and even if she was only being used. And in the absence of a family story, she'd choose a story in which there was risk and adventure and rebellion and independence. She's not a bad girl, my friend said. She was just choosing the best story available to her. I pictured his daughter flipping through the channels of life and, as it were, stopping on a story that seemed most compelling at the moment, a story that offered her something, anything, because people can't live without a story or without a role to play in it. So how did you get her out of it, I asked, and I I couldn't believe what he told me next. Jason decided to stop stop yelling at his daughter. And instead, create a better story for her to live into. He remembered that a story involves a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. So I started researching some stuff on the internet, and Jason said, and I came across an organization that builds orphanages around the world, and that sounded to me like a pretty good ambition. Something maybe my family could do to try to could try together. It sounded like a good story. Right, I said, and I was trying to remember the elements of story myself, so I called the organization, Jason continued, and it takes about $25,000 to build one of these orphanages, and the truth is, we don't have the money. I mean, we just took out a second mortgage, but I knew if we were going to tell a good story, it would have to involve risk. That's true, I said. I remember that from the seminar, seminar. so I went home, and I called a family meeting, my, fa- my friend continued I did not tell my wife first, which turns out was a mistake. Um, I can agree with that. But I told them about this village and about the orphanage and all these terrible things that could happen if the kids didn't go to an orphanage, didn't get an orphanage. Then I told them that I had agreed to build the orphanage. You're kidding me, I said. No I'm not. And my wife just sat there and looked at me. You know that look, don't you? Uh, Like I had lost my mind. And my daughter, her eyes were as big as melons, and she wasn't happy. She knew this would mean that she would have to give up her allowance, and who knows what else? They just sat there in silence. And the longer they sat there, the more I wondered if I'd lost my mind, if I'd lost my mind too. I actually think you might have lost your mind, I said, feeling somewhat responsible for the whole situation. Well, maybe so, said Jason, looking away for a second with a smile, but it's working out. I mean, things are getting good, Don. They're getting really good. Jason went on to explain that his wife and daughter went back to their separate rooms and neither of them talked to him. His wife was rightly upset that he hadn't mentioned anything to her. But that night, while they were lying in bed, he explained the whole story thing about how they weren't taking risk and how they weren't helping anybody and how their daughter was losing interest. The next day, he said, Annie came to me while I was doing the dishes, his wife. He collected his words Things have just been really tense between us these last year, Don. I haven't told you everything, but my wife came to me and put her arms around me and leaned her face in to the back of my neck and told me she was proud of me. You're kidding, I said. I'm not, my friend said. Don, I haven't heard Annie say something like that in years. I told her I was sorry. I didn't talk to her about it, that I just got excited. She said she forgave me. She said, we have an orphanage to build, and that we're probably going to make bigger mistakes, but we would build it. My friend smiled as he remembered his wife's words. And then Rachel came into our bedroom, maybe a few days later, and asked if we could go to Mexico. Annie and I just sort of looked at her and didn't know what to say. So then Rachel crawled between us in bed like she did when she was little. She said she could could talk about the orphanage on her website and maybe people could help and could post pictures and she wanted to go to Mexico to meet the kids and take pictures for her website. That's incredible, I said. You know what else, man? Jason said. She broke up with her boyfriend last week. She had this picture on her dresser and she took it down and she told me it was because he said she was too fat. Can you believe that? What a jerk, she said. And Jason said, what a jerk, of course. But that's, that's done now, Jason said, shaking his head. No girl, catch this, who plays the role of hero, dates a guy who just uses her. She knows who she is She just forgot for a little while. She just forgot. So we gather together. We tell stories. The word is the centerpiece. We dig into it because our hearts are aligned to his heart. We sing. We encourage each other. Last thing that they did, they celebrated. They celebrated like they had never celebrated before. The people, they just begin. And and what Nehemiah did was say, we want singers and sent singers this way and this way. And we're going to praise God and begin to celebrate the win. Have you heard that before? Celebrate wins. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I get so busy looking at things that are not going well that I forget all the ways that God has blessed us. The ways that God is working in our lives. I get so self-critical that I don't see the grace of God in my heart and my story. They begin to celebrate, they sing, they praise. This week we were doing this review and it just gave me the chance to really process the last couple of years. And one of the questions was this, what's going right? What's going right in this church? And I sat down in Starbucks, and you're not gonna believe this. I know this is shocking to you, but I begin to cry. Uh, In the middle of Starbucks, because I'm just starting to write down the things the ways that God has blessed through this this church. We have such a generous church in so many ways. We give so much money away. I don't know if you know this, but well over 15% that comes into this place goes out of this place to help people that are in need, to help provide food, to provide clean water, to help people that need a job, to help tell the gospel around the globe. That's what's happening here. So generous not just with your money but with your time we've seen that all this week we saw it in pictures earlier investing in young people investing in, in teenagers investing in young kids telling the story of who we are who God has called us to be who God is we have a, a young adult ministry for the first time for a long for, we've net, we, i haven't been able to say this in forever but we had a vibrant Group of college age kids that are worshiping and they are on fire for Jesus. If you have a kid that's just graduated or a kid in that age group, you need to send them to our young adult group because they are amazing. I go in there and go, man, I feel convicted because I don't have this kind of passion. God pokes me in that room. Our Spanish ministry, our kids' ministry, all kinds of. Geraldo was doing amazing things. To see the people of God praying on a Wednesday night as I walk into a Bible study down the hallway and hearing the words cried out to God for for people thanking God the way he's blessing our 430 service he's growing us as a church in a time where churches are not growing folks our church is growing there's so many new faces here on a regular basis it is fantastic what God is doing the way he's healing marriages and hearts we say it's him again it's him again he's at work and, us, and there's only one person to thank for that and it's him would you stand with me I'm going to pray for us uh, and then we're going to sing that song we sang earlier and I just, call, I just ask that you would praise God in this time praise God for what he's done for you Praise God for what he's doing in you. Praise God that he's not giving up on you, that he's for you. He's doing something in you and he wants to do something through you. Let's pray that and let's sing together. God, you are so good. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you do not give up on us. Lord, as far as we can run, you will run even further to chase after us. God, thank you for your forgiveness, your redemption, your redemption, and we are children of yours, Lord. We're sons and daughters. Our past does not define us. Lord, I thank you for the good work you've done in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in marriages. Some that were broken, Lord, and you are restoring. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in ministries around this church. Lord, I thank you for you're doing through giving around the globe and around in our community. God, I thank you for what you're doing in our young people, God. I thank you for the the good news we've heard just from a couple of weeks ago of 11 kids who gave their life to you in the back, and all the good work that happened this week, Lord, and we know that's all about you. God, help us to, to tell the story, to form our lives after the practices in our lives that help us to remember who we are, what our story is, that we get to be a part of it, Lord, and we say that you are the hero of the story, and we get to be a part of your good work in this world, Lord, shine through us.